Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Um, hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Book in Chinese Studies. My name is Yijen from University of Pennsylvania, one of your channel hosts at New Book uh, Networks. Today, we are delighted to have Professor Brian DeMar from Tulane University with us on air to discuss his new monograph titled Tiger, Tyrant, Bandit, Businessman, Echoes of Counter-Revolution from New China, which is just published by Stanford University Press, August 2022. So using rare grassroots archives, the book dives deep into four true criminal cases during the political campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries of the People's Republic of China during its early years from 1949 to 1953. The first case file recounted a story of a Confucius scholar um, who found himself aligned with bandits and secret uh, society members. The second case file was on an assassination of a communist cadre by a farmer who was condemned as a landlord and as an evil tyrant by the party. The third case file was about how the two runaway landlords avoided persecution of the party state by exploiting relative and religious networks in local community. And the fourth case file was on a hapless merchant who accused of a crime he did not commit. Uh, read collectively, the book shows how the newly established party state brought its power to religious society. And more importantly, the book persuasively demonstrates that the rural revolution could only be understood within its specific local context. In addition, the book also does a model work in showing the historian's craft of critically reading, analyzing, and using archive documents. So, Professor Damar, congratulations on your new publication. Thank you, E. I'm thrilled to be here uh, talking about the book with a, a fellow specialist on rural China. This is, I, I couldn't ask for a better host. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to our interview today. So my first question is a, a classical one at a New Book Networks. That is, what brought you to this specific book project? Well, I'm really happy to talk about this because this book is in many ways the culmination of my entire career uh, as a historian of China, which is to say I started visiting China in the late 90s. I lived there for five years in the early 2000s, and then I, I visited China as often as I could until the world turned upside down a few years ago. And the entire time I was in China, I was, I was hunting for documents. I'm lucky enough to have lived in China during what historians sometimes call the golden age of archival research. And I'll, I'll start out by saying it, it wasn't so golden. Uh, it was a very still a difficult time to, to do research and uh, ar uh, archival work. So, you know, over the, the years, uh, all I did really was 
look for documents, uh, really, you know, anything I could find. So I spent a lot of time in the, the National Library. I visited all sorts of archives at the provincial level, the city level, and the, the county level. I uh, utilized private markets, either visiting old bookstores or, or, or more importantly, buying uh, things online. And I also did field work where you know, I went to the countryside to meet with villagers to talk about rural revolution. And I also did a lot of kind of informal field work where I just went, where I just went traveling. And I'm, I always tell my students that they need to, as soon as they can, go to China, get on a train, go traveling. Uh, there's really nothing like the, the, the thrill of traveling around the Chinese countryside and seeing all the wonderful diversity. And uh, I'll note here that my my travels did take me to northern Jiangxi, which is right next to uh, Poyang County is where we went visiting. Um, but as for what brought me to this specific project, it was these sources. So all of those years and years of, of, of hunting for sources finally paid off for me uh, when I w- was able to have this very small but very very rich collection of archival sources, and so in, in that sense, the sources dictated the, the topic. I didn't seek out this this book. This book found me. Yeah, your uh, field work sounds just uh, very productive, and actually, your answer has already uh, touched upon the next question I will ask. So I know, like we all know, the usage of archive documents is always a key uh, for historical studies, and this book is no exception, as you discussed. Um, the primary documents your book relied on are from uh, the archival collection titled Materials on Poyang County, Northern Poyang Spies, Bandits, and the Secret Society Activity. Uh, in Chinese, it's Poyang Xian, Poibei, Tewu, Tufei, Huimen, Huodong, Cailiao. So, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, could you please talk about how rare and valuable these documents are? Yeah, so let me first say that archival sources are not the only kind of valuable sources, and that uh, in my work, I utilize a a whole range of sources, including published materials like land reform novels or operas. But that said, uh, in terms of archival documents, these are as rare and as valuable as they get. They were created by the county-level Public Security Bureau, so you know the, the county for thousands of years, the lowest level of government administration. So these are as close to the people, close to the grassroots, if we want to use that word, as you can get. Um, I just want to note from the start that they were created by essentially the cops, uh, police officers, so and you know, security officers. So they are they're they're very problematic in that regard. And I I always need to keep that in the forefront of my mind when I'm working with them. Uh, They were created by the Public Security Bureau to further aid their control over local society, which in Poyang meant uh, villages. Exactly who archived them is unclear. It's not the case that the archivists were self-conscious about who they were and what they were doing and and why they were doing it, which is another level of complexity here because we have an archive without a clear and an identifiable archivist. Uh, But you can find some clues as to when they were archived and for what reason in terms of, uh, for some reasons, uh, for sometimes uh, it'll state it was archived by a certain working group that only existed for a few years. So you can 
you can sometimes get a sense of when they were archived. I should further note that uh, it's very lucky that this archive even existed in the first place. Not all rural public security bureaus kept their archives. Many many just trashed their files after the uh, trials were concluded. They just didn't see the point in uh, holding on to them. So this is a point that Michael Schoenhals makes in his book, uh, Spying for the People, which was very influential for me. Uh, but as he notes that the Central Public Security Bureau leaders had to tell counties to uh, to, to keep these archives. So uh, that's just one of many, many happy accidents uh, along the way that allowed the publication of this book. I'm happy for you, and I'm happy to see the uh, the final production of this uh, this long term uh, archive journey. It's, it's just a productive and a very fab- fantastic book. So yeah, as you said, like you also wrote at the very beginning of the book that the documents uh, this project relied on um, they include many uncommon voices of rural folk. And those kind of revolutionaries, as you said, the grassroots voices. But uh, at the same time, um, as you just discussed, and also you discussed it many times throughout the book, that these documents are far from perfect or complete. They are recorded by the uh, the cops, right? So they include many filtered information. Of course, we historians always deal with the filtered information. But uh, I'm sure those who have already read your books will agree with me that the way you deal with the primary sources is just impressive and marvelous. But could you please discuss, like, you know, is there any specific strategy or methodology you deal with these documents uh, with our audience who do not read your book yet? The, the documents are just uh, amazing. Uh, let me start by noting that I'm, I'm not the only person who has worked with documents such as these. There's a, a, a group of scholars that I've identified in my book as belonging to the new field of Poyang studies. And uh, I was able to reach out to them and, and, and talk to them about working with these sources. And it's funny because when you talk about the sources, they all get this certain look on their face of, of just you can see all the frustrations and trouble that these sources have given them. And I would say there's two essential problems with the sources. The first is the material conditions of the sources. So they are, the, the pages are torn. Uh, their characters are very hard to read. Uh, and I want to make very clear is that I did have some help when I worked with these sources because they're all handwritten and I like to think that my Chinese is pretty good, but reading this handwritten scribble from semi-literate villagers from the 1950s is very, very difficult. So what I did is I relied on a team of undergraduate research assistants who transcribed the materials into uh, typed uh Chinese, which I was much easier for me to work with. So I want to give a special shout out to my three uh, research assistants, all very atypical uh, Tulane students in that none of them were finance majors. They were all students in the School of Liberal Arts, uh, or there was one in the School of Public Health. So they really helped me. But the, the, the difficulty of just understanding the characters on the page cannot be overstated. Uh, there was this one character that kept on popping up in one of the documents that my my student and I were having a lot of difficulty with. And, and one day she, she came and she told me that she had figured it out. And I asked her how she had done that. And she had used WeChat to send the character to her grandmother in Shanghai, who, 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 who properly identified what that character was. So 
In terms of working with the documents, I sometimes will say this was truly a family affair because the the just the the sources, uh, the materially, the you know the the quality, and a lot of times the characters would be miswritten, which was was a, a problem. So that's the the, the first problem, and the, the second is that you know I, what I like to say is that the the files are full of voices, but who can you trust? Uh, you know, so some of the men uh, in the book were charged with serious crimes such as murder, and they all claim that they're innocent. Everyone who talks to the cops is innocent in, in their view. And then there are the public security bureau, bureau uh, uh, security officers, and they are trained to, um, with a certain worldview where they, they assume that the countryside in Poyang is just like the countryside everywhere else before the communists come to power, which is to say it's a, a bastion of feudal power full of reactionary landlords and evil tyrants. So that filters how they see things. And they are the ones who entered, uh, you know, confessions and statements into the record. So that's, it's very difficult. And what, what I'll say is that, you know, how to deal with all these problems. Well, you know, on a certain level, they, they can't be solved. So there's, um, a certain level of imperfection baked into the book that you just can't, solve all of these problems. But some things could be solved through uh, what I can uh, to detective work. And I, so I spent a lot of time just looking for anything I could find about these villages. Uh, so I did a lot of time, for example, hunting for clues in local caseteers. And one example I have is that in the first case file, there's a location called Hongyong that's very essential to the story, but I just could not find it on any map anywhere. And it wasn't until I was uh, digging through a local gazetteer that I realized that back in the 1950s, the entire township had been buried underneath a water reservoir. So it just ceased to exist. Um, And, you know, this is one of many aha moments uh, in the book. Uh, So uh, the other one is that um, I like to talk about is that in the third case file, what I call the case of the Bodhisattva Society, uh, at the heart of that a criminal investigation, there was a uh, reference to a, a 1930 murder when a local communist uh, organizer uh, had been murdered. And the what I eventually realized was that the security officers had entered his name incorrectly into the record. And so I had difficulty figuring out who he was. It was very confusing to me why he didn't show up in the list of martyrs in the official uh, Poyang County uh, County Gazetteer. And I eventually realized that they had gotten it wrong. And I was able to realize that they were talking about someone else who was in the uh, Poyang County Gazetteer. And the Gazetteer had mentioned where he had been um, uh, basically sold out. Uh, some local elites had turned him over to the um, to the Guomindang, the nationalists at that time. And so, you know, I, I, I entered the, the name of the village where he had been captured into uh, uh, Google Maps, actually. And when you hit enter, you know, Google Maps does that thing where it zooms into the location. And it zoomed into this location in Poyang County, exactly where the guy I was looking for should have been. So this is another one of these great aha detective moments like, yes, this is it. Um, But uh, the the these are two examples of, of, of mysteries uh, from the 
problems in their archival files that I was able to solve. But for the most part, you know, these mysteries, these these textual problems cannot be solved. So so in the end, what I did is I, you know, I constructed the narrative for each case file as best as I could. And at the end of each case file, I pause and I discuss with my readers all the textual issues that 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 vexed me. And so, so that's why I think that this makes this book really suitable for people who care about the practice of history or for, for students. So, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot is that uh, to me, I think the um, our field of history is in, in, in a crisis. And I think part of that is that, you know, there's a misunderstanding of what history is. You know, some, some people think it's memorizing dates. That's not it. And, you know, some people think it's kind of these popular histories where for me, all too often the, the narrative kind of overshadows the, the sources. So what I wanted to do was to really dig in to the documents, to the sources and get everything I could get out of them and nothing more. So I didn't embellish anything. I didn't. I didn't add anything. I didn't invent anything. And I, I really do hope that readers will agree with me that the, the closer to truth that history gets, the, the better and more readable it becomes. Yeah. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much for sharing with us the many aha moments during the research. And also, I, as a reader of your book, I really love. Uh, I mean, like at the uh, each chapter, at the end of the each chapter, you discussed the documents with your readers. That is really helpful. It's like, you know, I do not only uh, learn something from what had been recorded in primary documents, but also I learn from the limitations and the silence of the archive documents you used in your book. Um, yeah. Um, so following the several pages of a few words before we begin and a timeline of, event, of events, you have one chapter discussing the setting of your research, Poyang County. Um, yeah, all of the four criminal cases in your book occurred in this uh, county, Poyang County, which is located in the northeastern part of the Jiangxi province. And as you described in your book, um, this place is just a modest corner of rural China. So why did you take this small place as your research site for the study of the rural revolution in the PRC? Is it, a, a, I mean, a typical rural county in China, or it is not? It's very typical. And uh, that's not just me who says that. Uh, I, here I'm going to refer to the uh, godfather of Poyang studies, uh, Mobile Gao, who is from Poyang, uh, was born to a poor peasant family, and because of the Cultural Revolution was given an opportunity to go to university, and he now uh, is a professor of Chinese studies in Australia. And he's written two books about Poyang that were incredibly helpful to me, and I also was able to chat with him about his home county. And as he makes clear in his book, um, his books, Poyang is, is utterly typical. And that's why I'm very happy that it became the focus of this study. Uh, you know, I often think about... Uh, Zhangzhuang, which is uh, the village in Shanxi that we know much better as Longbow, which was the site of William Hinton's uh, book about land reform called Fanshan. And Fanshan was a very atypical place. They had a, a large uh, Catholic community. They were kind of semi-occupied by uh, Japan during the war. Um, whereas Poyang is uh, 
just another county in China. It's very rural. It has very little in the way of, of, of industry. Uh, I was recently uh, workshopping the book with uh, the last group of students. And I had a student from China, from the PRC, who who asked this same question, because he had never even heard of Polya. Um, <laughs> no, he hadn't. So uh, it really it really flies under the radar. Uh, but um, that's what uh, it's it's very typical, um, you know. Uh, so that is um, so that that's that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm very happy that uh, I, I ended up on uh, studying this place. And I, I think that, you know, reading about, you know, reading the documents and read about Poyang, it, it really brings home to me the, the power of the local in China, because the, the world of Poyang is so insular. And when the, the communists come, you know, there, there is this kind of great struggle between the outside forces of the state and uh, locals who are trying to, to, to push back. And uh, it, it really kind of uh, uh, underlines just how important it was for, for local identity, for your, your village, your family, uh, all of those things. And I, I really, and I'll, I'll just note here, I really enjoyed learning about Poyang over the course of, of writing this book. I, I delved very deep into Poyang history. I was, you know, reading about what was happening during, you know, the, 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 the Qin and Han dynasties there. So it's a, it's a place with a great history, but, um, you know, for, for, for most people, it's, it's just another County in China. Yeah. Um, Professor Damar, so what do you just, uh, Discussed just occurred to me, like you know, how limited we know about the rural vast um, uh, place in China, right? So even though we have already know a lot about the recent past of the PRC, but what we know about the rural China is just limited. Um, yeah, I found that it is really helpful to introduce this county and its um, rich history before diving into the four cases in your book. And at the same time, I noticed that, I I think, if I'm wrong, please correct me, I think you intentionally avoided to mention any secondary scholarship in the May text in this setting part. Um, instead, at the end of the book, you provided a further reading for readers, including uh, Gao Mobo's, uh, the, 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 like uh, his classic uh, two books, two volumes on the Poyang County. You also include a great discussion of secondary scholarship in your uh, extensive footnotes. So why didn't you include a regular literature review part in the introduction chapter in this book? I mean, it is quite a standard practice, right? To include a section on literature review in the introduction chapter. Why you didn't? <laughs> well, I'm glad you pointed it out because this book is is atypical. So, you know, we can go back to the 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 the, what you mentioned. So it starts with uh, a few words before we begin instead of a standard preface. And that was, it's very self-conscious. I made a lot of choices when I wrote this book. So I knew, and it all comes down to the audience of the book, which is not for specialists. I, obviously specialists will read this book and I, I, I hope that they enjoy it and I hope they get out of it, a lot out of the book. But I, I really wrote this book for our students. So you know, instead of calling it a preface or a prologue, I call it a few words before we begin to signal to readers, including 
uh, student readers that they're part of this journey. And this is this is uh, written for them. And I hope that they're going to join me as the author in this exploration. And for the setting, you know, I didn't use the word introduction, first of all, because most students will skip the introduction, uh, but also because I wanted to emphasize a, a sense of place um, and draw readers in and give them a lay of the land and let them understand, you know, where is the lake? Where are the mountains? Where, where do the bandits hide out? Uh, you know, where, what, what, what use are, uh, you know, bamboo? Like how do the locals use bamboo? How do they use timber? All of those things. And so, um, if I can give readers a sense of place, that's kind of what I was aiming for. And, that's why there's not a standard literature review within the text. Now, at the end of the book, there is an, a, a list of suggested readings for for each uh, of, for each chapter or case file, uh, where I discuss some of the books that were important to me and some of the books that I hope that my readers will seek out. As I note, uh, this is just a one book in a very rich and growing field, and I, I want them to seek that out. So I didn't put the lit review in the book because I had a clear sense of the audience. And the audience of this book, the, the most important audience, are our students who who don't know who uh, – mobile gal is they they barely know who i am right and i'm the, i'm the one writing the book that they're reading so uh so i tried to keep the i tried to keep everything as 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 quickly flowing as possible and specifically about the the, the setting is that i wanted to get to the case files as, as quickly as possible so this book has been workshopped with multiple classes uh, with of, of undergraduates. And the thing that I learned was that um, just because something is interesting to me does not mean that it's going to be interesting to my students. They wanted to get to they wanted to get to the case files. So um, so that's what I endeavored to do. And I will note here that I, I cut out a lot of a lot of prose that was very precious to my heart. Uh, some of it is found in the footnotes, but some of it is uh, is, is lost to history. I see. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I believe uh, students will love this book. It's just uh, included as fantastic tales and of the dramas, uh, and also they will get the historical insights. So uh, uh, the title of your book is Tiger, Tyrant, Bandit, Businessman. And by the way, I really love the cover design of your book, um, which are the protagonists of this book. I, I think you use these four labels instead of, uh, I mean, using a uniform counter-revolutionaries uh, to indicate the uh, various constantly changing identities and the labels of uh, these people in Poyang County. So could you uh, talk uh, more about your protagonists, like, you know, who they are, who exactly they are, and why did they resisted the new order of the communist republic and how how did they become the kind of revolutionaries well um thank you for asking this question i'll, I'll note that the the title came out of working on the documents uh, in that I, I just couldn't believe what i was 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 finding i, I remember one day I'm, i was sitting in my office with one of my research assistants and we were talking about the, the characters that that were emerging from the the documents, and you know, when we thought about Big Tiger and these tyrants and the bandits and the businessmen, it, it just it just all came together. And I, 
I love the title in particular because it puts the spotlights on those individuals. Um, you know, rural Chinese as a you know as a group, there's no group that's larger and and less heard of in the historical record. So, what I wanted to do was highlight these individuals, and you see that in the case files. And I'll, I'll just go over the case files just really quickly for your listeners. And I'm I'm not going to provide any spoilers here. I, I really hope that. Uh, everyone listening to this goes out, seeks out the book, reads these stories, hears these voices, um, because they're they're all amazing. So case file one, that's the bandit case. Uh, and, and in this one, we have the arrival of the People's Liberation Army and the uh, locals in Poyang are, are mostly fearful. So one of the things I point out is even, even farmers who should have looked forward to the arrival of the communist communists didn't know what to expect. Um, the villages were very insular and they all had to uh, look out for themselves. So you have all sorts of self-defense uh, organizations, including secret societies, most importantly, the big swords. And the big swords for you know a few years had been fighting off local bandits. Then the People's Liberation Army comes and says secret society members are, are also counter-revolutionaries. So they actually end up teaming up with their former enemies, the bandits, and the, the result is that there's a, a, a large scale three pronged attack on a communist uh, government outpost that uh, has a very deadly result. Uh, in case file two, this is, uh, this is our tiger case file that refers to Big Tiger, which is the nickname of a farmer who had basically two things going for him. One was his big size. He was like a tough hooligan and also his family. He was connected to the uh, local family that kind of ran things in his corner of the mountains. He becomes a tax collector and accusing, uh, abusing his power. He has an affair that's very scandalous. That's a big part of this case file. And then the uh, a, a communist cadre comes to his village to uh, requisition grain. And as a result, some local uh, elites uh, conspire to have Big Tiger and some other tough guys go and murder this cadre. And the thing that I really love about this case is that it's really clear to everyone involved that Big Tiger was a murderer. But it took years for the, even though the communists were technically in power, it took years for them to arrest him, which is just really it sheds a lot of light on kind of the way that justice works uh, during this moment of regime change. Uh, case file three, that's the case of the Bodhisattva Society. Uh, and this is a fascinating, they're all, they're all fascinating, but this is another great one. So here we have uh, two landlords that are charged as evil tyrants. So we go back to the title, this is our, our tyrant. Um, they escape from prison, uh, which is uh, in itself uh, an amazing, oh my God, what am I finding in the documents? I, you never thought that you know, you'd have these evil tyrants escape from, 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 from jail. Uh, and then uh, while they're uh, uh, hiding out in the countryside, there's another landlord who had been on the run. He had left his village during land reform but he had no place to go. So he turns himself in to the Public Security Bureau. He says, hey, I have a lead on those other two evil tyrants. And the PSB has him go undercover as basically a secret agent to find these uh, undercover um, or these hidden on the run evil tyrants. And let me say again, Wow, I was really surprised when that happened. And also in this case file, there's a there's a rumor about undead landlords roaming the hills. This one was just it was a this was a it was a very fun one to work on and write. Uh, the the final case file is our businessman. That's Merchant Ja. 
he's a, a struggling businessman who's trying to run his oil press when the communists come to town, and that brings him into conflict with local cadres. The end result, he is charged as a counter-revolutionary for a, a, a whole litany of, of crimes, even spying for a hated army. Uh, so, you know, and I think his case more than any other shows how easy it was to become a, a counter-revolutionary. So, you know, in terms of the question, you know, how do these people become counter-revolutionary? There, there's all sorts of different ways it happens. But uh, the, the unifying theme is that the power of the accusation of counter-revolution during this period. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing with us. So I, I find, yeah, as you discussed, yeah, under the label counter-revolutionary, there were there were bandits who wanted to get military equipment from the uh, People's Liberation Army and those who really have the ties with the nationalists. But also, there were uh, ordinary rural folk who resisted. Like the grain requisition policy of the uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party and those whose power or benefits were threatened by the new order established by the Chinese Communist Party. So, like like as you uh, wrote in your book, uh, I quote from you. So the line between the farmer and outlaw, between the outlaw and the I mean the nationalist, as you wrote, was actually very thin and permeable. Um, and you said, during difficult times, some struggling villagers used the force to take whatever they could from their neighbors. And when an economic crisis passed, bandits expected to return to farming. I mean, when I read this, I mean, first it came to my mind is, oh yes, this is just a strategy of ordinary rural folk used to survive, right? But at the same time, it just occurred to me that how this straightforward fact at the grassroots level could be ignored, right? When we focus on the grand top-down narratives. Um, and also like uh, in the trial in the case files, uh, the trials in the case files two, three, four, were took place in a branch of the people's tribunal instead of a traditional people's court. So according to your research, at the early days of the New Republic, there was a dual-track legal system, uh, which included the traditional people's courts and the newly established tribunal courts. Could you elaborate more on this dual-track legal system? Why was it established at the early days of the PRC? And how did it work at the grassroots level? So here I'm going to uh, first note that this is something that's been pretty well explored by other uh, other of my colleagues in uh, the new and growing field of Poyang studies. But just to give a, a quick uh, overview of, 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 of their work and my work, uh, you already have a, a regular court system in, in Poyang that becomes the, the people's court. Um, but it's just not large enough to deal with all of the criminals that are created by the revolutionary campaigns. So the the people's tribunal system is set up very quickly, um, and it's kind of it's attached, of course, to the new and growing administration. And its its primary purpose is to deal with rural criminals that are well, I'll call them counter revolutionaries here, but it could be also anyone who pushed back against land reform or grain requisition. So in the sense that they are defying the new regime, that makes them counter-revolutionaries. It's not that they uh, are actively pushing for the return of the nationalists. Uh, So the People's Tribunals were a way to kind of quickly deal with the thousands of criminals uh, that were created during this 
very dramatic moment of regime change. Uh, it's short lived, uh, but you know it, it really is a key part of the uh, arrival of communist power in the, the countryside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this dual track legal system is part of uh, a new invention of the Chinese Communist Party. And the subtitle of your book is Echoes of Counter-Revolution from New China. You mentioned in your book that you intentionally used New China instead of People's Republic of China. So, so I mean, like we all know that existing scholarship has already uncovered many connections between Chinese communist ruler and its predecessors. You, your book also spare great spaces in discussing the similar ruling strategies used by Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese Nationalist Party. So could you please elaborate on the new part of the state? What made the new republic different from its pre- pre- predecessors? Well, in essence, the new Chinese state, the you know, New China or the, the PRC were able to do the things that earlier regimes had longed to do, which is to bring the power of the state down to the grassroots. So, you know, when we go back to imperial times, you have, you know, one magistrate in Poyang County with this huge population trying to manage things with clerks and runners. The Republic of China, the nationalists, they get closer, they set up uh, district governments, which aren't very effective, they they set up a, a, a actually relatively successful Baoja system that brings the state a little bit closer, although it's very informal. So people in the Baoja system are not paid. There's a lot of corruption. We see that in Case File 2 with, with Big Tiger. But they are able to collect taxes and conscript soldiers. But that's about that's about that's about it. Now I will note those are two very very important things, but th- what's new here is how the the power of the state comes right down to your village, and I, I think we actually really see that with with Big Tiger because Big Tiger committed murder, but all of his actions after he committed murder indicate that he didn't really think that he would have to pay for his crimes. He continued to live in his mountain community. He did not try to flee. He did not go on the run. Uh, and he, he really acted as if, you know, the, that he believed that the communists were like the nationalists, right? What are they going to do? He's in, uh, up in the mountains, far from state power, surrounded by his powerful family. He's also a big, tough guy himself. But what he learned and what readers will learn is that this is a different kind of state. It's one that is able to bring the power of the state right down to the grassroots. They do it with a a series of of political campaigns. So, you know, we talk about land reform. We talked about uh, campaigns against evil tyrants, the anti-counter-revolutionary campaign. And this really um, systematic legal system, which is is really quite new. So uh, I think for the villagers of Poyang, who were long accustomed to a distant state that that when it arrived, it was mediated by local power holders, they were not prepared for new China. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Professor Damar, so 
I have to say you write very fast. I mean, if my memory is correct, your first monograph, which is uh, Mouse Culture Army, right, was published in 2015. And your second book, uh, uh, the, 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 land, the Land Reform, was just published in 2019. Many audiences of new book networks, including myself, uh, are PhD students, early career scholars. So is there any tips you want to share with us, like how to be such a productive scholar or writer? <laughs> um, I'm a little awkward uh, when I answer this question. I, first, I want to I want to say I, I gotta, I'm going to push back a little bit um, that there there were eight years between my PhD and Mao's Cultural Army. So in in terms of you know my early career productivity, it, w- it was not that productive. Um, so uh, to any early career researchers, my first message is that you should not look at my recent productivity and think that this is normal or even possible. When I first finished graduate school, I spent the vast majority of my time applying for jobs and learning how to teach. So to to everyone out there, my first message is to attend to your mental and physical health. Academia is unkind and the academy will never love you back. Uh, but, uh, but, but it is true that I have... Um, picked up the pace, I guess, in the last few years. And, and part of that, I, let me point out, it's due to the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm I have tenure. I, I, I have, um, I, you know, uh, I have support. I can, I can get research assistance. I have a lot of students who, uh, enjoy working on history with me. And so that's very, very helpful. But if, if, but I, I do want to try to offer some piece of advice, uh, and, <laughs> so I think that what it comes down to is I'll, I'll focus on the issues of, of scope and audience. So I'll talk about scope first. And one of academia's uh, many problems is the disease of more. So when you send out for something review, for review, what the reviewer always says is, you know, why don't you add this? And when you go for tenure, that's the same thing. It's like, why don't you write another article or two? Um, so in terms of writing, you know, a first mon- monograph, I just want to say, you know, you need to, from the start, accept that you're not writing a total history, right? It's impossible to figure out, you know, how to put, how to put everything on the page. So you have to figure out, you know, what's important and, and, and define the scope of what you're going to do. And so I think this is something that you see in all of my books. If you look back at Mao's cultural army, you know, I'm looking at the role of drama troops in the revolution, but then I only discuss a tiny fractions of the thousands of drama troops that were in the countryside. Right. So I don't talk about everything. I, 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 I chose I chose my spots and said, you know, I'm going to talk about, you know, these drama troops for this period and then these ones for this period. Uh, for land reform, uh, defining the scope of the project was even more important because if if I was to write a, a book about land reform that covered everything, it, I would still be writing it. I would probably never finish it. That's that's. That's land reform. It's it's such a huge topic, and 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 so you know what what I did there is I said, well, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to take the narrative of land reform, I'm going to I'm going to use that as the framework, and and I'm I'm not going to worry about covering everything, you know. And of course, when the book came out, a lot of the reviewers 
pointed out, well, it's missing this, it's missing that, it's missing that. And I would say, of course it is, because otherwise it, this book wouldn't exist. And you know, for this one, I really had no choice. These were the four sources I had. This, I only had four case files. Um, and, and, and even here, you know, um, I did have to push back against the idea that I had to add more and more. It, because as I mentioned earlier, my readers, uh, in fact, wanted less. They, sometimes they were overwhelmed by all of the detail I was giving them, especially when I was talking about Poyang's vast history. And so I needed to really get to the point, uh, which kind of brings me to the, the, the second, uh, I guess, thing I'll talk about, which is your audience and that you've got to continually ask yourself, who are you writing for? You know, so for early career scholars, I, I'll just point out one of the, your most important audience is your editor, right? You know, their, their job is on the line. They got to pick books that make sense uh, and, and that will sell at least a few copies. So, you know, there's a book called, I think, Thinking Like Your Editor. It's uh, it's not exactly aimed at authors such as ourselves uh, who are writing in serious academic scholarship. It's a bit more for popular nonfiction. Um, but, you know, I found some of those lessons useful and you have to remember that, you know, these editors, they when they read your proposal, they're they're asking themselves, you know, who is going to read this book? They're 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 concerned about audience. So you know, besides thinking, you know, what's the editor? You know, how am I going to convince my editor to accept this project? You have to say who is who who do you really think is going to be reading your book? And so a, a, for a first book author. I think that means identifying two or three seminars where your book would fit, and then keeping those seminar students in mind as you write the book. And you do need to think about, are these graduate students or are, are these graduate students and undergraduates? Because undergraduate readers are different than graduate readers, right? So graduate readers, they approach the book as professional historians, whereas undergraduate readers are, you know, they're, they're in your class. So if you want to actually have undergraduates read your book, you need to think strategically about how, how you write it. Um, and I, I wish I could have better advice uh, than that, but I would, uh, I'll say that. And I'll also just circle back to the long period of time that it took me in between my PhD and my first book. It was, it's a very struggling, a very challenging period. And uh, my, 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 uh, I, I send positive vibes to all uh, PhD students and uh, early career scholars. Thank you. I mean, uh, the tips and uh, suggestions you gave is just uh, super helpful. Uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, um, at the end of your book, you talk a little bit about like you know this book it, it was written during the pandemic, right? Could you uh, share with us like? And I'm, I'm, I'm myself very curious about like you were writing experience during the pandemic because I basically wrote my dissertation during the whole pandemic, which is. Um, challenging i would say so could is there any like interesting episodes you want to share with our, our audience um well the the first thing i'll say is to everyone however you survived the pandemic that that was the good way to do it okay so um i i i don't want to suggest that uh during pandemics, you should be productive because sometimes you, it's impossible to be productive. Uh, but what happened with me is that um, when my son's school went virtual, uh, I was able to add hours to my day as I didn't have to worry about uh, driving him around. And wh what I would say is this, is that 
I it was a it was a very challenging time for me, as it was for everyone, right? I'm not I'm not I'm not special in that regard, but um, it was very challenging. So what I did is I tended to throw myself into Poya. I I. I it was my way of coping was that for a few hours a day, more than a few, I would leave uh, 2020 and I would go back to 1950 and I would immerse myself in the documents and I'd immerse myself in the, the files. And that there was some comfort in that. And also what I would say is that I reached out to everyone I could think of who was uh, either working, uh, you know, a member of the the Poyang Studies Group, or or people who had interest in in China, in rural China, and, and the revolution. And I reached out to them and set up Zoom calls, and 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 that was really helpful for the project, but for for also for my sanity. But uh, again, there's no there's no good way to spend a pandemic. Uh, but uh, for me, at least at the end of the day, uh, I have this book and I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for it. Not just because, um, you know, it's, 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 it's good for, for me and my ego to have a book, but because I am honestly very happy and proud that I was able to find these voices in the archive and share them with readers. It's something that I, I consider kind of the, one of the, 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 the very, highest of highlights of my career. <laughs> Thank you, Professor. So uh, let's talk about what is your next project? Well, okay. <laughs> this, is a, this is a tough question. It's, it's somewhat complicated by the fact that um, uh, to congratulate me on becoming full professor, my colleagues in yeah, my, my colleagues in the Tulane History Department uh, have, have decided that I am now going to be chair of the department, which uh, means that instead of writing uh, scholarship for the next three years, I'll mostly be writing emails that start, uh, dear colleagues, please excuse this, you know. So, um, I say uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, mm. I want to be really careful and thoughtful about what I do next. I, I'm I'm. You know, I'm at that stage where I, I'm very much aware. I only have so many summers left in my life. I, I want to use them wisely. Uh, this is somewhat complicated. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you know this. You, I, some of your uh, listeners might know this, but six months ago, I was uh, leaving a, uh, a a dinner that we had for a visiting scholar, and I was uh, walking back to my car, and I was run over crossing the street uh, and nearly died. Um, I was uh, very lucky. The the um, the angle that the car hit me, uh, the size of the car, and of course, my uh, natural historian cat-like reflexes uh, allowed me to to walk away. But um, but I it, it really was a traumatic event. And so I'm I'm forcing myself to 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 take a beat and to to think about what I want to do next. That said, uh, there's a couple of projects that I'm working on. I'll, I'll talk about one of them because it relates to the biggest problem I found in the sources, which which are the the, the lack of female voices. Uh, readers will will all pick up on the fact that there's only one woman who's who's has who's actually named in the case file. So um, so I, I I really am sensitive to the fact that um, I'm someone who has been trained in the history of, of women in China. I, I teach on this topic and I wrote this book with almost no women in it. So I, I, I do want to kind of, I have some archival leads. I, I, I want to go and investigate that. Um, but I have some other projects that I'm, I'm looking at uh, that have nothing to do with rural China 
nothing to do with the Chinese Revolution. Uh, I, I, I do uh, have some some thoughts, and I, I hope I hope that um, uh, I'm able to to live to see them come to fruition because I, I think that they would uh, surprise my colleagues and, and hopefully delight some of my readers. I'm really looking forward to reading your uh, other research on either gender studies and uh, topics outside the uh, revolution in China. So at the end of the interview, I want to say thank you again for joining us to discuss your fantastic new book today. Uh, I also want to say thank you for our audience who have the patience uh, to hear through this interview. The interview today actually like both Professor Damar and I did not in, like you know include too many details of the four tremendous tales included in the new book. We don't want to be the spoiler. And so I strongly encourage everyone who has an interest in Chinese history or want to get a marvelous introduction to the historian's craft to get your own copy. I promise you will get both the fantastic tales as well as historic insights. Okay, goodbye everyone. <laughs>